Let's open our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, where a preacher who knows the Word of God finds a chapter that provides preaching material that can last a long time. Hebrews chapter 13. We've had two sermons so far from this chapter. We've only made it through the the fourth verse. The first three verses dealing with that great subject of Christian charity or love, hospitality, and the fact that a church is placed in one body to have mutual care for each of its members. But verses 1 through 3, covering the subject of love and unity and hospitality that God expects of His saints one toward another. Verse 4, dealing with that great subject of marriage and the sexual relationship God honors and promotes within that institution and the condemnation of such activity outside of marriage. Hebrews 13, as I pointed out last Sunday, is one of those chapters where the apostle summarizes a whole string of miscellaneous or various duties that we're responsible for. He elaborates on them in other places. Here he simply summarizes them to remind us quickly of a few major areas in our lives we need to give attention to. We've covered two of those. And this morning we want to take up a third. I'm thankful for Paul writing his Bible this way. In one place we can cover a great number of different and varied subjects all in one chapter. There's not too much of a context here in Hebrew, parts of Hebrews 13 because many of the verses are standalone, single sentence descriptions of our duty. I do want to thank many of you, most of you, who either said something to me last Sunday morning, Sunday evening, saw me during the week, called me on the telephone or wrote me and said how much you appreciated the preaching last Sunday morning in dealing with the sexual relationship in marriage. It's a subject that you won't find dealt with in very many pulpits because most pulpits are filled with chicken, livered, milk, toast, compromising, puritanical, prudish Pharisees who are unwilling to give you the whole counsel of God. There's one chapter in the Bible, Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul summarized his work among the Ephesians. And he said, I kept back nothing that was profitable for you. And I appreciate all the comments I received that said that was profitable for us. We need that. I'm glad you're a pastor that will do that and take courage to do it. I needed that. I haven't been other than to a degree in Detroit, part of a church, and I've been exposed to hundreds of churches where ministers preached what the Bible has to teach. This is one of the most practical relationships we have. We covered it last Sunday. There's a lot more to be said. We'll find ways to say it, and we'll cover what was not said last Sunday in the next few years, God blessing us. 
Oh, I won't take forever to get to it, but we'll have different forums for covering it in greater depth. But I thank you for those of you who said the things that you did. A pastor needs sometimes appreciation for whether his preaching is accomplishing any good in your lives or not. I don't preach to ever be told that was a great sermon. But it's good to know sometimes that it's accomplishing some good. You know, in most churches, I mentioned this to some brother last Sunday, I believe, in most churches, during the concluding hymn, I would make my way down the aisle and stand at the back, and all of you would shake my hand on your way out the door and be obligated to say, great sermon, pastor, great sermon, pastor. I'm glad I stay up here considering that thought, because I don't preach for that. But I do take kindly the things you have to say about the good that the Lord accomplishes through the preaching. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 is our subject for this morning. I had prepared all week to cover 5, 6, and 7, or at least I began the week with a great deal of zeal to cover all three. About halfway through the week, I realized the two subjects of 5 and 6 will take an entire sermon. How shall I squeeze verse 7 in, since there are three different subjects? And this morning, I'm down to verse 5, because verse 5 in and of itself is enough to take our attention this morning, and that's the subject of Christian contentment. So that's what we'll deal with. And as Brother Bob said before the service began, I may be limited to the first half of verse 5. But we'll see if we can't get through the entire verse. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. One sentence, one verse, the Apostle Paul lays on these Hebrews to whom he has given 12 chapters of deep, careful, logical, systematic comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now it's time for a one-verse reminder that we ought not to be covetous, but we need to learn to be content. And that's what we want to cover this morning. Let your conversation... The word conversation used in your 1611 Bibles does not mean let your speech be without covetousness. Let your talking be without covetousness. Conversation means your manner of living, your conduct in life. Let your overall conduct in your life be without covetousness and learn to be content with such things as, and be content with such things as ye have. Paul says learn it in another place. But we want to guard against covetousness. So let's look at the negative part first. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. You'll need not to keep your finger in Hebrews 13.5 because all of you know it by heart. Exodus, surely you know that verse by heart. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. The last, not the least, of the Ten Commandments that God gave His people Israel that have not been taken away, they have not been done away, they have not been de-emphasized in the New Testament. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. 
And it goes on to say, Thou shalt not cover his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his ash, or anything that is thy neighbor's. So this verse, this tenth of the Ten Commandments, tells us we are not to covet the possessions, including the wives, of our neighbor. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the Ten Commandments are given again. They appear twice in the Decalogue, and here we have the second occurrence. Deuteronomy 5.21, and the reason I want you to turn here is to see that the word covet is replaced with another English verb. Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife. So we have here, by comparing the two sets of Ten Commandments, a definition for the word covet. It means to desire your neighbor's wife, and it goes on to say, his house, his field, his manservant, maidservant, and his other possessions. To covet something is to desire something that is not yours. To covet something is to desire something that is not yours. To be in a state of discontentment. You're not happy. You're not satisfied with the things you possess. You want something else that is not yours. But now let me put a limitation on that definition. Can a child of God desire something that is not his and desire it without coveting? Or let me put it this way. Can a child of God desire something that is not his without desiring it? And I'm assuming that you understand the sense of how I'm using the word desire. Can we desire something in a godly way and not desire it in an ungodly way? Looking in the book of Deuteronomy at chapter 12, let's see that God assumes and justifies us desiring things that are not ours. There's another word in the Bible that means the same as desire and covet. I'll not turn to the references to prove its substitution by the Spirit. Do you all know what it is? It's a four-letter word. Lust. To lust after something is to desire it or to covet it. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Verse 20, When the Lord thy God shall enlarge thy border, as he hath promised thee, and thou shalt say, I will eat flesh, because thy soul longeth to eat flesh. Thou mayest eat flesh, whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. If the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to put his name there be too far from thee, then thou shalt kill of thy herd and of thy flock, which the Lord hath given thee, as I have commanded thee, and thou shalt eat in thy gates whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Your soul, in these two verses, may, if you were an Israelite, may have lusted after some particular dinner. Now, there wasn't a lust here for a shrimp dinner. There wasn't a lust, uh, a lust here for spare ribs. There wasn't a lust here for a bacon breakfast. But there was a lust for things that God allowed. It may have been leg of lamb. It may have been filet mignon. Because God justified both of those. And did not justify the other. But if your soul lusted after it, the Lord said, eat it. Eat it in your gates if you can't make it to Jerusalem. This is not the same as the annual pilgrimage of chapter 14. This is simply God describing the blessings that He would give to His people. He liked them eating in Jerusalem, but it was not a requirement always. They could eat in their own gates if it was too far to travel. 
But notice that God here legitimate makes legitimate the lust after things. Longing after things. Same as desiring or coveting something. Look at chapter 14 and verse 26, which we've turned to many times. We'll have the word lust defined with the word desire in this text. Here's the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Verse 26, Thou shalt bestow that money, that is 10% of your gross take that year, for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, that's a steak dinner, or for sheep, leg of lamb, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. There's the word lust defined. And thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice thou and thine household. Here's a lusting. Here's a desiring that's done before the Lord thy God. This is something done in the worship of God, and God definitely commends it in this place. Because when you're rejoicing before the Lord, there's a time to enjoy all the good things God has given to us. Now, Paul makes that clear in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he tells us God hath given us richly all things to tithe. Does he say that? God has give, God hath given us richly all things to give to the poor, to enjoy. God hath given us richly all things to enjoy. The monastic view of life is not a Christian view. God has given us things to enjoy and He expects us to enjoy them. My point right here is, look at the word lust and the word desire and the word longing after. God commends it. He expects it to be satisfied. What if you didn't keep Deuteronomy 14, 26? You'd be sinning against the commandment of God. And as we've studied elsewhere, you would be sinning in that you would not be rejoicing with the full gladness of heart that God expects His people to rejoice with even under the cold, cruel, hard Old Testament. Look at Proverbs thirteen nineteen. Proverbs thirteen nineteen. Is there godly coveting? Is there godly desire? Is there godly longing after something? Is there godly lusting? Proverbs thirteen and verse nineteen. The desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. Well, here's a righteous man that not only has a desire, but he goes out and satisfies that desire. And the desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. Most of you men should know what that means. Ever had a job before you? And to finish the job, the desire to have the job complete, isn't it sweet to the soul? You've been wanting a new car. You haven't been laying awake at night with beads of sweat on your forehead worrying about the new car. You haven't thought of ways to steal a new car. You've been working diligently and saving money to buy a new car. When you finally have the funds you need and you buy the new car, is it sweet to your soul? Absolutely. Definitely. It's what Solomon describes in the book of Ecclesiastes to enjoy the fruit of your labor. And it's sweet to enjoy that labor. And we enjoy our labor by spending the monies secured by labor on things we desire. God does not condemn that. Within limitations, we'll be at in a moment. 
Look at Mark 11. Mark 11. What do you pray for? Do you pray for things you don't desire? Do you pray for things you don't care about? Or do you pray for things you desire? Well, here's what the Savior Himself said in Mark 11 and 24. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, first repent of your covetousness, and then pray. What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. God honors us desiring things. Why? What's that favorite text of mine from Psalm 37 and verse 4? Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. God's promise to give us the things we desire. And here He tells us to pray for them and believe that we shall receive them and will have them. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 31. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. I like the word the apostle chooses here. But covet. Now I thought the Bible said thou shalt not covet. But covet. Don't the Bible critics love the Word of God? It's so easy to find contradictions in it. And it is. I've got books at home, 500 pages in length, with a couple contradictions per page. Because the Bible's filled with so-called contradictions. Is there any contradiction? Not if we rightly divide the Word of God and give a sense to godly coveting and a sense to ungodly coveting. Here is a godly object that we should covet, and that is the best gifts. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Chapter 14 and verse 39 tells us a similar statement. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Prophecy being the highest of the gifts after apostleship, and tongues the least of the gifts. If you're speaking in tongues, don't be content with that. That's not much of a gift. Covet to prophesy, to preach, to edify the congregation. Tongues that don't edify anyone. And so the apostle says, covet. There's a positive imperative command for us to do some coveting. We admire and even desire clothing. You ladies might see another woman in the congregation with a dress, new style, new color, new fabric, whatever the case might be, and you may admire it. You may go beyond admiring it and desiring it by saying to yourself, I'd like to have a dress like that. And so you may set aside money for that end to purchase that dress that you admire and desire. You have not sinned as long as your pursuit of that dress is within the bounds of what I'll give you in just a moment. We do that with automobiles. Several of us have looked at David Kruger's Corvette. We admire David Kruger's Corvette. There is in our hearts, stronger in Jeff Oley's heart than in mine, a des- I'm giving away a covetous man. But in a, in a way that Jeff has not sinned. We desire that car. We sit in its seat, the cockpit of his Corvette. Charlie Doring's already coveted one and satisfied his coveting and has one. We sit there, we fondle the steering wheel. We fondle the gear selector. You haven't sinned yet. 
brethren. That's something God has given for us to enjoy in its proper place. We look at each other's houses. We may covet a better house. We may desire a better house than the one we have. We look at others' guns and we, we rack the bolt. We like the sound. It's music to our ears. We stroke the stock. We'd like that gun. We long after it, but we have not sinned yet. Covetousness is when that desire for a thing consumes you or causes you to consider sinful action to obtain it. Covetousness is when your desire for a thing consumes you. It takes power over you to where it controls you instead of you controlling it. And second, when it leads to an ungodly action to get your hands on it. That's covetousness. Let me try to explain that consuming desire. If you lay awake at night possessed, if your thoughts are running through the day constantly to this thing you do not have but you want, it is covetousness. Because it's controlling you. Covetousness is such consuming desire that it replaces God. God is to be uppermost and first in your thoughts. Your love and your desire is to be of God. First, if those thoughts begin to be crowded out of your life because you're so desiring something else, it has become sin to you. You say it sounds like a gray area. I thank God for gray areas. It does two things. It requires wisdom on your part. And if you're going to be wise, you're going to go beyond the gray area. Only fools like to tread in gray areas. Consuming desire not only replaces God, it creates care and anxiety. You're frustrated. You're complaining about your job because you're not making enough money to purchase a Corvette. You start barking against God. You're frustrated with your family. They're spending too much of your money to be able to buy that Corvette. It has become sin to you because you're now filled with anxiety and care. The Bible says plainly, we are not to be careful for anything. If it has become care, it's become covetousness of an ungodly sort. And it's too much. If it has power over you, if you cannot shed the thought for that thing, it's sin. Paul said, all things are lawful for me. Coveting anything is lawful for me. I'm using that verse in the way of covetousness, but I will not be brought under the power of any. If that thing gets power over you to where you start making poor decisions, and I'll define some of those in a moment, in order to get something, you've sinned. You're a covetous man. It is that desire in the heart, that longing for something, that is the basis of sin. Jesus said all sin comes from the heart. And we need to guard our desires and what we lust after very carefully that we do not sin. Look in the, in the book, Bible to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, we have the story of Achan given to us. Remember, Achan was that Israelite who took a wedge of gold and a Babylonian garment from a house in Jericho where God had said everything was to be destroyed utterly. He took something. What was the process? What occurred in his heart for him to remember the words of Joshua that God had commanded them not to take anything, but he took it? What was the process? Why don't we take his words? 
These are the words of a condemned man. You know, our newspapers love to quote the last sentence or the last few sentences of men just before they go to the electric chair. Well, this is the statement made by a man just before he went to the stoning and when he and his family were burned. Joshua chapter 7, verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and two hundred shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Three steps. We see things that we like. Then after we see them, we covet them. Then after we covet them, we take them. Sometimes that may be taking them by theft. And now that's obvious sin. And you can know that your desire prior to the theft was covetousness because it resulted in the theft. See, covet, and then take. David with Bathsheba. He saw naked Bathsheba. He liked what he saw. He then coveted her in the marital relationship. Then he took her. Very same steps. And so much of sin works the very same way. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And there, there's a valuable point to this, brethren, that I can make stronger than any generation that's lived yet. And that's on the sight of the eyes. Because there's more that you can see than any generation that's ever lived. And it is presented in such a way as if they do not use these words in subliminal advertising, they ought to. And they do, whether they use these precise words or not. Covet, covet. Lust, lust. Desire, desire. Have, take it. For those of you who don't know what subliminal advertising is, we'll get to that in the men's meeting. <clears throat> At some point, Brother Tim is preparing a presentation on subliminal advertising. James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. I like to look at those words and realize that not only does God infuse us with temptation, but God's never made anything that causes temptation either. Every creature of God is good, whether it be the beauty of a woman or the beauty of a Corvette. It is what your heart does with that thing that makes it evil. Like I've said before, God made wine, but wine has never made anyone drunk. It is the heart of man that desires to drink more wine than he should that makes him drunk. It's the sinful nature of man's heart, not that innocent liquid called that we call wine. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. And what can we substitute there? His own desire, his own longing. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own desire, his own lust, and enticed. We can desire a thing, but when desiring that thing entices us, seduces us, into subjection to it, we are now on the path to sin. We've already sinned in that it has enticed us to a point of sin. Because it goes on to say in the next verse, then when lust hath conceived, 
It bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We have four steps here. We have the lust that draws us away. Then we have the enticement of that lust getting us under its control. Then we have that thing that controls us resulting in an act of sin. Then we have death, which is the wage of sin. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world. If you're in love with this world and the things of this world, you already are in great danger of being covetous if you are not this morning. Loving the world is to be covetous because God tells us not to love it, but to love Him. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God's rather dogmatic, isn't He, in His Word? He doesn't, he doesn't think that you can go around loving both. He says, if you love the world, you can't love me. You know, men get upset at preachers who are as dogmatic and who have lots of short, blunt sentences that draw things black and white, but God's Word does it from Genesis 1 to the end. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, now he'll define what world he's talking about. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, your bodily cravings. Your body may crave drink to the point of drunkenness. Your body may crave food to the point of gluttony. Your body may crave sex to the point of adultery. The lust of the flesh. Remember our word. The desire of the flesh. The longing of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. What you see and you like. Not so much your bodily desire, but something your eye sees and it's pleasant to the sight. As the Bible describes the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as it appeared to Eve. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Things we do out of our pride. It's not so much a bodily craving. It's not so much something we see with our eyes as that spirit in us that lusteth to envy. We have to be better than everyone else. And so pride causes us to do things, say things, secure things, to make us better than others and to put others down. And we've sinned in any one of those three areas. And brethren, you can sum up everything under the sun in those three areas. That's all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When we use the word world the way it's being used right here. Now, if you love those things, your body craves them, your eyes crave them, and they result from the pride of life in an ungodly way in any one of those statements, you are in love with the world and you do not, you cannot have the love of God in you. You cannot have both. The world passeth away, thanks be to God, for verse 17. The world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. God will take care of this place and all of the lust it creates in us, but will abide forever in a new heaven and a new earth, where, brethren, you can lust and covet after anything there with the lusting and coveting that God will give you because it will be a glorified coveting. And that will I'll tell you what it will be. It will be to honor the Father and to honor the Son. Have you ever thought about Eve? 
If you'll go back and read Genesis 3, I don't have time this morning. I've preached this message before. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Eve looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what did she realize about it? It looked like a tree that had good-tasting fruit. What would that be? The lust of the flesh. It was pleasant to look upon. Lust of the eyes. It was a tree to be desired to make one wise. The pride of life. Those were the wiles of the devil, brethren. Three of them. Threefold in the Garden of Eden. When Satan meant the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness, he tempted him with hunger. What would that be? The lust of the flesh. He tempted him with a vision of all the kingdoms of the world. What would that be? Lust of the eyes. He tempted him with the promise of God and daring him to prove that he was the Son of God. What would that be? The pride of life. Prove that you're the Son of God. Satan's got a limited repertoire, brethren. But that limited repertoire is enough for you and me. He can whip us any time if it were not for the grace of God in those three areas. My body craves enough. My eyes see and desire enough. And I've got enough pride in me to commit any sin this book describes. If it were not for the grace of God and His Word continually poking and pressing and cutting those things out of my life. There is a place to admire others' possessions without sinfully desiring them. But it's a dangerous course that we follow when we begin to let any desire, any affection, any lust for anything begin to become important to us at all. We are to be content with the things that we have. Our nation, and turn to Psalm 7, Psalm chapter 10, the 10th Psalm, our nation is drunk with covetousness. There has not been a nation where there has been the abundance of all things like we enjoy, and yet, on top of that, the constant bombardment through all of our senses to have more. You say, how do you know that? Have you read history books describing every generation? Those other generations didn't have the means nor the way to communicate covetousness like our generation does. Psalm 10 and verse 3, The wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. God hates covetous men. Our nation blesses them, and our nation boasts of covetousness and of the heart's desire. Our whole society is based on what do you want? Go get it. What do you want? Go get it. Advertising is bombarding us every day. We need a new car. We need a new automobile. We need to move up in our housing. You know, the tax incentives that are given for us to buy up, you want that greater mortgage interest deduction to justify buying up. They ought to reward you for buying down instead and saving some money. We have a nation that promotes spending everything you have. If you'll spend it all and incur debt for it, we'll subsidize you for it. If you save and deny yourself present pleasure, we'll penalize you for it. Now, Psalm 10.3 speaks of our nation. We turn on the television. Every three minutes it's bombarding us. Every 30 minutes of programming has 13 minutes of advertising. 
to bombard you with the things you don't have and you need them. You open the newspaper, 80% of the column inches are advertising, not information. Bombarding you with the things you need to get. We live in a generation where if you live in a neighborhood, you've got to keep your house up to the standard of the one beside you. It's a race and a game with the Joneses. And I don't mean any personal offense that way. We've got lots of Joneses in this congregation. Isn't it in America? Always having to have more, better, better clothing. Clothing in America is no longer something to keep shelter your body from the elements. It has nothing to do with that. Clothing in America has assumed the packaging by which we present ourselves one to another. And so you're always buying better clothing, not because it protects you better, but simply to present a better package, the pride of life. You have the expensive boots. You have clothing made out, made out of exotic materials. Not because it's better. Not because it's cheaper to produce. It's always more expensive. But you wear it so that everyone will know you're wearing a 100% wool suit. Or you're wearing a 100% silk dress. You, what is that? That is covetousness when those things become the important things in your lives. And some fool this morning will say, does that mean I can't wear a silk dress? Go soak your head. I can't preach for three hours helping the immature listeners. There's nothing wrong with a silk dress except when a whole society becomes geared to that only. That's, that's the preoccupation of people's minds today, is to get these nicer things. These nicer things are just to make you prouder. I read in Proverbs chapter 31, the virtuous woman was dressed in purple. Purple in the Bible is the garments for royalty. She was not dragging around in a cotton dress. Oh, I better help the wetheads again. It's not a sin to wear a cotton dress either. I'm trying to make a point. The virtuous woman dressed herself in purple. For a woman to be attractive is a godly virtue to aim at and to dress herself well. But we live in a society where automobiles no longer are simply a means to get from point A to B. They are how much you can impress your neighbor with the late model or the gadgets that your automobile has. And we can run right down the list. You know, our great-grandparents, how many square feet did they have per person in a home? They had more kids than we do, and they had much smaller homes. I don't know what the number was. Was it 100? Was it 75? Was it 40? What do most gener what do most families in this world have? Square feet per person. You say, are you condemning big houses? Not unless it's consuming you. But notice what we have. Why, we aim for 500. 400. Beggar, beggar, 
faster, better. Why? Where is it getting us? Where is it getting us? I read a book in the last couple of weeks called Henry and the Great Society. Jody's father gave it to me while he was here a couple of weeks ago. The providence of God couldn't be better. It speaks to Hebrews 13 and verse 5. It describes Henry, a man who lives out at the end of this little dirt road way out in the country. He uses an outhouse. He plows his field with a horse. He goes to town in a wagon pulled by horses. He has no electricity. And it describes the contentment and the peace and the sleep of the lives they led. It describes during the winter when there are 12, at least 12, usually 14 or 15 hours of darkness, where the family would sit at home and be forced to communicate one with another, invent their own games. The children would be forced to build things, explore. And I can't read you the whole book, but the book describes how that kind of a life was far more scriptural than when, quote, progress, unquote, arrived at Henry's doorstep. And the book describes progress arriving. First of all, they want to come through and pave that little dirt road. And they widen it, and they cut down some of the favorite trees of the family and pave this road. And pretty soon the shiny automobiles are zipping back and forth on the road in front of this peaceful little home. And the children see the shiny automobiles and the automobiles go blasting by their horse and wagon, scaring the horses. The kids are embarrassed to arrive in town because their parents don't own one of those shiny automobiles. And electricity arrives. And once electricity arrives, the family is so proud of their new debt that they've acquired to, to run that wire to their house. Then they realize electricity does you no good unless you buy the appliances that stick on the end of those black snakes. And so they buy the appliances. And now the children are entertained by their television. And on and on it goes to support all of these new items of progress and to enjoy the finer things in life. Old Henry has mortgaged his farm. And old Henry now has to go into town and work in a factory. Instead of being out there with God's earth, following a horse, looking to God's providence for his food and raiment and shelter, he is now possessed, and he has men beating him on the back called creditors, forcing him to work at a factory two shifts a day to try to make ends meet. And the book describes the fact that Henry's life ends with no quiet, no peace, he can't sleep at night, their life has turned into a rat race. His wife is never home, she never has time to greet him, he eats TV dinners half of the nights in the week because his wife is running back and forth to town in their shiny new automobile. She's a member of the PTA. She's a member of the Canista Club in town. She needs to meet with the ladies. And when the ladies meet at her house, well, of course, she needs new carpet or the ladies would be, would frown on her because she had such poor floor coverings. And we get into this rat race where there's no quietness. And someone says, should I go put an outhouse in my backyard tomorrow? I'm not teaching that either. However, we need to make some efforts in our lives to control this madness that has gripped the 20th century to fill our lives with all these labor-saving devices 
that haven't saved women any time because women now are doing all these crazy things that occupy their time. We're rushing kids back and forth to all these activities where they never think, never show any initiative on their own, no creativity. You say, Little League's good for my son. What does he learn? Just as an example, what did little boys used to have to do? Go out and build a raft and float down a stream. Now that takes some ingenuity, some creativity, some work. Go build a treehouse. Go explore a cave someplace. You say, is there no place for Little League? There's a place for Little League, you poor souls. But let's make sure we keep things in bounds in our lives. And I'm going to get to some verses that will condemn the 20th century and what I'm talking about. We live in a rat race. I, there's a way that it'd be great if we didn't have electricity. Do you know what that would mean? All of you men would work normal working hours and that's between sunup and sundown and we wouldn't have to play games trying to get every man together in this congregation. You'd be home with your families on some decent schedule. You know, it's kind of nice when a husband and wife go to bed together. Those of you who work at night, I don't know how you do it. When a family goes to bed together, they get up together. They have to sit around together and entertain themselves with conversation. That horrible curse of the 20th century, no one communicates any longer. Because things have filled that void. There's so much noise in the life of a man in the 20th century. There's no... Who controls who in this world? Don't they control us? Labor-saving devices, time-saving devices, the finer things in life. Progress. What has it got us? It has turned us all into slaves to the things that are in the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That doesn't mean we can't have running toilet. I thank God for that witty invention of that little silver knob that I can push and everything disappears. In the Old Testament, you had to carry a shovel around with you all the time. I like a toilet. Josie Kruger became an American citizen for an inside toilet. That is a great blessing that we take for granted. It's a great blessing. But you start adding three toilets, four toilets. Let's not have silver knobs. Let's have gold-plated ones. And pretty soon we've got gold-plated toilets. We've got this cushy little seat that we sit on. We've got an automatic dispenser for putting out this blue-colored liquid that smells so precious. And we on and on and on we go to where it's driving us. Elimination is still elimination, brethren. It's not some glorious transfer into heaven when we enter this cushy little bathroom. We are under the control of three things. And I want to warn against them this morning. We look at covetousness and we think of someone who covets a TV in the store. So during the night, he gets up out of bed, he goes downtown, he takes a hammer, he breaks the plate glass window, he goes in, takes a TV, puts it in his car and he comes home. We call that covetousness. Forget that. That's too easy. Let's talk about covetousness where this mad pursuit of things and this discontentment with a simple lifestyle has so overwhelmed us, we've got to have bigger houses, newer cars, better clothing, on and on, where it controls us. That's covetousness by the definition I gave earlier. 
We are anxious and careful for too many things. Look at Proverbs chapter 30. If we don't hurry, Bob's prophecy is going to come true. Here I am hurrying again. Do you know what's doing it to us this time? The clock. If we didn't have electricity, you wouldn't know how long it had been because your sundials wouldn't work in here. You'd say the Swiss would have invented the wind-up one well. Maybe we wouldn't have come in contact with Switzerland. Proverbs chapter 30. Here's a godly man. We've read this before. Verse 7, Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. This is how I am defining covetousness for you this morning. If you fall on either side of this line, you are either guilty of covetousness or slothfulness. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Lest I be full, there's a rich man, and deny thee, and say, Who is the Lord? We live in a nation like that. And lest I be poor, and steal, and take the name of my God in vain, give me something in between, something of moderation, where I can handle both excesses. That's a wise man. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 5 ends a three-verse statement of the Apostle Paul regarding men who know nothing. Let me read verse 5. Verse 4 said he knows nothing. He's a proud man that knows nothing. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. What finally summarizes these kind of men who know nothing? They suppose that gain is godliness. Gain, success, progress becomes their God and becomes their number one evidence that God is with them. Supposing that gain is godliness, God says they know nothing. They're corrupt and perverse men. From such withdraw thyself. Paul says, get away from men like that. But now verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. To be godly and to be content with the things that you have is great gain. Let's talk about a successful life. What is a successful life? Is it having more things? Or is it being content with the things that you have? Not being content with the things you'd like to have. Hebrews 13.5 says, be content with the things that ye have. Present tense. Present tense, are you content? Are you content with two suits in the closet or do you need seven? Are you content with your 79 or do you need an 88 or 89 or 90 automobile? How content are you? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Men want to know, how can I have a successful life? What is true gain? I'll tell you, it's being content with the things that you have and being godly at the same time. Verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. 
Here's another measurement of a successful life. It recognizes I came into this world with my birthday suit on and that's all. And when I go out, it's all I'm going to take with me. I'm not even going to take that because we're going to leave our bodies behind. We'll take our soul and spirit and you're not going to carry anything. No suitcase packing, no trunk packing, no investment in a Swiss bank. We'll go with you. Verse 8, And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Now, verse 8 does not say housing, but housing is included. Because when you run through the Scriptures and you find, house and, you find food and raiment combined where there is another item mentioned, housing is. And God has always assumed that men will have housing to cover themselves from the elements. Raiment is raiment we put on like this. Raiment can also be construed to be a house. It's the basic necessities of life is what the Apostle is saying. Because when you run through Scripture and find the basic necessities of life, what those deserving charity need, it's food, it's clothing, and it's shelter. Go read what Job did to the poor. He'd give them shelter also. But it's the basic necessities of life is what the Apostle is communicating. Having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. We are not content with those three things because our eyes see things we have to have beyond that. Our flesh craves things we have to have beyond that. And the pride of life will not let us live with other men simply with the necessities. We've got to have something over them. Verse 9, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. They that will be rich. Those that set their minds on riches fall into temptation and a snare. Are you unduly affected by the temptations of this world? Do you, find, do you feel your life in a snare toward wickedness? Foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition because of the will to be rich. And someone will say, but you preached Bible economics. If you go practice the ten rules of Bible economics, none of which was desire to be rich, if you go practice those ten rules and you get rich in the doing of those ten rules, then God has blessed you because promotion cometh from the Lord. But the Bible says if riches come, don't set your heart upon them. Riches are not the aim. Riches are not the aim. The aim of Bible economics and diligence is to take the one, two, or five talents God gave you and multiply them. <coughs> if God gave you more than He gave anyone else in this congregation in the way of professional pursuits, you better be the, the best off in this congregation. Because if you don't have something to show for it, then you have squandered what God gave you. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare because they're not content with the basic necessities. Verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That last clause cannot be dealt on long enough. They've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. There is nothing like the sorrow of discontentment it will drive you 24 hours a day. If you're discontented with your spouse, 
It will drive you 24 hours a day. It becomes your master. If you're discontented with your house, it will drive you. It becomes your master. It beats you. It frustrates you. You are filled with vexation of spirit because your spirit is not content with the things that you have. It will fill you and pierce you with sorrow if you are not content with the basic necessities and the basic other things that God gives you within God-given means. Contentment doesn't promote slothfulness. Contentment still understands whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Contentment still understands that when the Lord gives five talents, when he returns, he doesn't want nine. He wants ten. And he certainly doesn't want them buried in the contented man who sits at home and does nothing, who isn't driven to make use of his five talents. Listen, slothful men are just as covetous as rich. Look at Proverbs chapter 21. When you see a lazy man that's never accomplished much in his life and hasn't utilized the gifts God gives him, and he says to you, well, it's because I'm contented with my state in life. He's lying. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 25. The desire of the slothful killeth him. That's a sorrow that pierces men through, for his hands refuse to labor. Poor men desire as much as others. It's just that they're in a real conflict. They desire things and they're so lazy, they can't work to get them. So it's a real source of frustration to them. At least the man who works and who's covetous in three or four or five years, he usually gets what he puts his mind to. But the poor man never gets it because he's too lazy. Covetous, uh, slothful men can be definitely covetous. Look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, the uh, soldiers once came to John the Baptist and they said, what shall we do to please God in effect? And he said unto them, do violence to no man. Now does that mean they were to lay down their arms and stop fighting? Do violence to no man. Put a sense on the word of God. Doesn't that make, that'd be, a, that'd be quite a legion, wouldn't it? A, quite a Roman legion going out to do no violence to no man. That's ungodly violence or violence that had not been authorized by their government. You know what soldiers are prone to do when they're in enemy territory? Take the women and take the goods. Live off the land. Abuse everyone around them through violence. And that's not warfare. Warfare is defeating the armed forces of the opposing side. We've known that from World War II. When the Germans went through Russia, they did violence to the land. When the Russians returned to Germany, they did violence to the land to punish beyond necessary a people by raping their women and taking their goods. Now, God sometimes required some of that. For instance, when the Israelites would defeat a nation sometimes, they would fill all the fields with boulders. They'd commission the entire army and the whole nation to either sow the field with salt or to go sow it with boulders so that if the nation ever tried to get itself back together again, they'd have fields filled with stones. You've been in farmer's fields, haven't you? 
and discovered those great mounds of stones that over a few generations, all the stones have been pulled out of the soil. Well, when the Israelites would defeat a nation, they'd take those and scatter them back all over the field to make it a little difficult to get reestablished. Or they'd sow the field with salt so that things would not grow. That's another subject. In general, soldiers do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. See, a soldier is under great temptation. He usually has a low wage, as our military, a low subsistence level wage. And so when you're in enemy territory, what's your temptation? Take a bonus. The, the temptation is to take a bonus from off the land. Many people will quote Luke chapter 3 and verse 14, be content with your wages, as if you should deny promotion. And you wouldn't want to work so hard that you get promoted or you get an increase in your wage because it shows a measure of covetousness. This text will be used that way. Be content with your wages. Listen, you work as hard as you can, and I hope to God your wages increase. They will. Proverbs teaches that over and over. The hand of the diligent shall wax fat. The soul of the diligent shall wax fat. David said in Psalm 62 and verse 10, if riches increase, don't set your heart upon them. That's to guard against covetousness when God does give blessings. Look now at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I want to read it beginning at verse 15. And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. This is something you need to watch carefully. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Now that doesn't sound very American. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, this will illustrate the point. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, And has there ever been a nation, the land of which brought forth plentifully like America? Keep that in mind as I read this parable. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And the text goes on to describe that it is not the body and life much more than the things that we wear or the things that we eat. And indeed it is. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. What you possess is not your life. And yet in America you have bombarded at you that is your life. Where you send your kiddies to school. So you've got to live in a better school district. What neighborhood you live in. Always better, better, better. And that is not what makes up life. You ought to see the statistical studies done on how children were educated and whether they're successful or not later in life. Look at Matthew chapter 6, which basically contains the words 
that follow in Luke 12, but I want to get the reading in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to assume that you're familiar with the words in between. I'll read the first and the 31st and the 34th verses. Verse 24, Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters. And when I describe credit, what does the Bible call credit? A master. When I describe our nation and its bombardment of advertising for us to get more and more and more, what has that become? Our master. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is our money, material system. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't do both. Don't think you have figured out how to do both. You cannot do it. I can tell you, if you love and are trying to serve mammon, you're not pleasing God. You can't do both. God has to be first in our lives and everything else subordinate to it. Our careers, our jobs, are to put peanut butter in the refrigerator so that we, our wives, and our children might serve God. Because you can't serve Him in the grave. That's why you work. But in America, the job is no longer the means to an end. The job is the end, many times, for covetous men. Because of the pride of life. They want to achieve a position of preeminence. Because of their desire for things. This is life obtaining things and I obtain it through my career or my profession. You can't do that. You can't serve God that way. Oh, if we could just get our spending patterns and our careers in line to put refrigerator, to put peanut butter in the refrigerator and to provide simply the necessities of food, clothing, and shelter for our families that we might serve God better. If God blesses you in your reasonable, diligent effort with riches beyond that, then use them wisely. But let's not let it be our master. No man can serve two masters. And I fear that it's become the master of most Americans and of most Christian Americans. Verse 31, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Why, Jesus Christ here warns against those that would be preoccupied with food, with drink, and with clothing. So much is the problem in America today. We're not worried about food, drink, and clothing. We're worried about the luxury of food that we can enjoy. We're no longer preoccupied with peanut butter. It's caviar. We're no longer preoccupied with chicken, it's steak. We're no longer preoccupied with having something to shelter us from the cold or something to protect our feet. It's a $130 pair of boots. That may have been too specific, but everyone gets the point. What are, what's that for? Is that to protect your feet or is that to show off? You say, what if I, what if God has blessed me enough to have a pair of expensive boots? Well, if you've got all of your other financial obligations well met, 
and you're not controlled by your covetousness, then wear the nicest boots you can afford. But I wonder how many times we have everything in the proper order. Jesus said in verse 34, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. We're so preoccupied with tomorrow, where we're going to be in our jobs, what we're going to obtain for our kids, how big of a house we're going to build. We've got enough evil today to take care of our lives. And that's what we're to be giving our time and attention to. Discontentment. If you're discontented with your life, it will lead to debt. Ask yourself, the debt I have, why am I in debt? Am I in debt to keep up with the Joneses? Now, I could get specific rather quickly here. I'll try to keep it general. Why are you in debt? Have you made debt your master? Do you have to be in debt to the point you are? Is your debt greater than the rental payment or the mortgage payment that you would have on a house fully sufficient for you? Is your debt on your automobiles necessary? Why did you have to borrow to buy an automobile? I can find you this afternoon transportation to get you from A to B. And you won't have to go into debt for it and make someone your what? Master. No man can serve two masters. A discontented state of life will lead to debt. It'll lead to workaholism. You see a man that's preoccupied with his career. He's working all the time. He's talking about his work all the time. It's his number one priority in life. Guess what? His work has become his end, not the means to an end. It's controlling him. It's his master. And it's not a disease. It's sin. Workaholism, where you work to the exclusion of everything else God requires, is not a sickness. It's sin. A discontented life will lead to anxiety. Tranquilizers and all the rest that our generation needs to get along with all their finer things in life. Isn't it amazing? How many of our great-grandparents had to pop tranquilizers? How many of them had need for it? Life was relatively slow, comfortable, and they were contented with it. We're in this rat race, running, 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 running. We've got to take pills to calm down enough to live with ourselves. I'm not taking pills, brother, and I said we as Americans. Discontentment leads to haste. How hasty are we? There's no patience left. It's rush, rush, rush. And Proverbs says, He that hasteth with his feet sinneth. Haste leads to waste because we've got to be running so fast to keep up. You know, the fast track, as MBA graduates are called, they're going to be put on the fast track when they graduate. And if they ever slip, in that fast track and fall behind those of their class, oh, what a blow. Fast track. We have a name for it in American business. A discontented state with life leads to theft. I hope there's no problem with that here. Unless your covetousness causes you to steal from God by not giving the first fruits of all your labor and of all your increase 
If you're not giving to God, the Bible says you're stealing from Him. And why would men steal but to have more for themselves? That's covetousness and a state of discontentment the Bible condemns. Discontentment leads to murmuring. Have you ever heard an American complain? Isn't that the height of ingratitude for an American to ever complain? What do Americans complain about? They complain about their job. They work too hard. <laughs> what a joke. What a joke. I remember Brother Jeff bringing me the Farmer's Almanac a few years ago and showing me the average day of a farmer that lived a few generations ago. And then Americans complain about their jobs. They have to work too hard. They complain about the things they have to eat. They complain about their houses. They complain about their cars. The height of ingratitude. Where do, what does that stem from but a state of discontentment that is result of covetousness? They go hand in hand. Brethren, let's deal now with this noisy life that plagues America. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul said in verse 11, as he describes true sanctification, here is a holy life. Verse 11, and that ye study to be quiet. That's not wiring your jaws so you can't talk. That is not becoming a clam where you don't communicate with others. That is getting your life together to where it is not filled with unrest and noise that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. God wants you to work so that you don't have lack of anything, that you have everything that God might give you to, to enjoy. But while you're aiming for that, while you're working with your own hands, that ye study to be quiet. This isn't something you'll do by nature. And if Paul thought he should, he should instruct the Thessalonians in this, what would he do if he were here today? The Thessalonians didn't know what noise was compared to our generation. And you've got to study to be quiet. You have to analyze your lives, what needs to be cut out that keeps us running all the time, or as a family we never have time to sit down and be at peace and talk to each other any longer. I never have time to take a walk and meditate. You say, should we be... I don't need to tell you that. We should have time for meditation, communion, thinking, just to sit and think. You say, now you're using the lazy boy that you've condemned for four years. There is a place for the lazy boy. And the Bible even says to put it back at full recline. And while you lay there to think upon the Lord, and believe me, when you lay back, you're going to have to look up. And to commune with your own hearts, we don't have time. There's so much noise, and when we do make it to bed, we have a, how, do, how is it usually put? A hundred million jillion things running around in our minds. Now, we say it that way. What are we saying? We're filled with too many cares. Study to be quiet. Are you fulfilling this scriptural instruction? Psalm 39 and verse 6. Let's define it with the Word of God. Does the Bible have any more to say about noise in the pursuit of things? 
or noise resulting from discontentment. Psalm 39 and verse 6, Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Psalm 39, 6, this is America. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Donald Trump being the epitome of it today. For those of you who know who he is, know what I'm saying. Those of you who don't, don't worry about it. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. Notice, Paul said, study to be quiet. Men who are trying to pursue the vanity of this world are disquieted. They have taken noise into their life in all this activity and worry and care for things. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them, because he won't, because God will cut his life off and his riches will be left to some fool son or grandson as Solomon so bitterly realized in his pursuit of purpose in this life. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, those who pursue riches have noisy lives. They're disquieted. And the Bible said they're disquieted in vain. There's no reason for the noise. Can you imagine what you would have done if the sun set at 5.30? You know, you didn't have what? Daylight savings time? If the sun set at 5.30, what would you do until you went to bed at 9 o'clock? You say, who went to bed at 9? Well, you went to bed at 9 when you got up at 4. What would you do from 5.30 to 9? We'd read some books. What books were available to read before the 1900s? Mostly the Bible. What came after that? Pilgrim's Progress. What came after that? Fox's Book of Martyrs. The three most popular books in the history of the United States. Families read. They had to sit there and talk to each other with dim, flickering light. What would you do? As you think of what would you do, do you do any of those things now as a family? And we wonder why families just disintegrate. Has it always been this way for 6,000 years that families just keep disintegrating generation? We've only seen the last one or two do it. Why? Because some father made the royal mistake of saying, my kids aren't going to have to live the way I did. I'm going to get all the fine things in life for them. Right. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And the great American father says, I'm not going to let my kids suffer the way I did. I had to get up when I was eight years old and go out and milk the cows so the kids don't have a job. And they're irresponsible and rebellious and not content with the things that their father provides for them because they've never earned a thing in their life. Now, this is so simple, a five-year-old ought to understand it, but we are possessed by our culture. We give them the fine things of life. They take them for granted. They abuse them. They think that is what life is. And some daddy did that with the honest motive and intention of treating his family well, but it was done in total ignorance from his human heart 
when the Bible says life is not the abundance of the things which a man possesses. Now, if you think I'm exalting an outhouse and no electricity where families sat together and worshipped God together, you're right. And let's see what the Word of God has to say. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 6. Better is an handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. See, Solomon was the only man that's ever lived, one of the few, I'll say one of the few, Nebuchadnezzar was there, that had the means to get what Americans have today. He could buy anything he wanted, less than a thousand women. Do you think his life was noisy? Let's just take one point, his life was noisy. And he made the statement, better is a handful with quietness. What is this quietness? Well, it's the opposite of travail and vexation of spirit. Then both the hands full. You know, you can just see the little kid with all his presents. Both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. And is America filled with travail and vexation of spirit? Tranquilizers, nervous breakdowns, insomnia, and all the other problems that go along with a life that's too fast-paced. And we actually glory in the fast pace. And brethren, I mean, I've been guilty of it. I have ridiculed the South sometimes because the South, in some places, does not, does, has not multiplied their talents. But in some ways, the South is a slower paced system of living that is better than that in the North. And yet, even in the South, we are all possessed. But in the north, where you've got everything geared to production, it's the industrial north. How wonderful. Everything's on a clock. There's a happy medium. Are we finding it? Or are we slaves to a master that God said should not be our master and that will pass away when he returns? I don't have... Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.32, I would have you to be without carefulness. We're filled with care. He said in 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, that we may lead our lives in all, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. Quiet and peaceable. How quiet is your life? How many hours a day do you sit around with your family and just talk? Just the word hours blew you out of the water. But how many hours do you sit around with your family and just talk? Go, go, go. It's the go-go generation and the go-go society. God is warning us against it. Look at Psalm 127. Brethren, there's balance in the Word of God. The Bible says the slothful man desireth sleep. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. That error is to be condemned. Get up and get to work. There's a time to get up and there's a time to work. But guess what? There's a time to sleep. And in Psalm 127 and verse 2, the Lord tells us it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. That is an unquiet life. That is a noisy life. To be disquieted in vain. Getting up too early, going to bed too late, 
and eating the bread of sorrows in between because you're not accomplishing things fast enough. And our society will beat you with that if you'll let it. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. You say, but God only gives me 70 years in this world. I can't, I don't want to spend 25 of them sleeping. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. We have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil set before us. It's called commercialism, materialism of the 20th century. What are you going to do? Are you going to look at it and be pleased with its pleasant sight? Are you going to crave it with your bodily cravings? Are you going to desire it because it satisfies the pride of life? God wants us to be quiet and to find some sleep. The Bible tells us that if you've got a merry heart, you can have a continual feast. And how many times does the Bible say with a little bit, you know, dandelion greens, the herbs, where love is, than to have a stalled ox, but to have strife and hatred therewith. Where does strife come from? This mad, envious pursuit for things is what strife, strife results from envy, being discontented with what you have and striving in an ungodly way for more. The Bible tells us that envy is rottenness to the bones. Envy, which is desiring things that others have, will rot you. It will destroy you. It will follow you and never let you rest. It will destroy and plague your physical body. It will break you down. A man not sleeping will be broke down. The Bible tells us the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. He's laboring and he's contented with what he has. We read of Alexander the Great that when he had conquered the known world at the age of 30, he sat down, put his head in his hands and cried because there were no more worlds to conquer. You will never be satisfied with things in this life if you think, I'm going to give it just one more hard year to get that house or that car or that television set or whatever is your master. I'm going to get that, then I'll be content. You are the most ignorant and deceived man going because it will not satisfy. Notice all the efforts at, at the Holy Spirit in describing that pursuit as vanity. They are disquieted in vain because it will not satisfy. The Bible says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. It will not satisfy. The Bible says, let the poor, let the, let the man of low degree rejoice in that he shall be exalted and let the rich mourn for their riches will pass away. James chapter one, verses nine and 10. Did you know that the Bible describes covetousness as idolatry? That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. In the New Testament, Colossians chapter three, covetousness is defined as idolatry. How is it idolatry? Number one, God says, I get all of your affection. If you love something else, guess who just took second place? God. So it's become your idol. That's a way in which covetousness becomes idolatry. Who gave you what you have? If you have worked diligently and faithfully within bounds, who gave you the house you have, the car you have, and the clothes you have? Almighty God did. If you're discontented with those things, who are you barking against? God. 
It's become your idol. Other things have become your idol, and you'll actually complain against God. God said He would have you to be without carefulness so that you can give your care and attention to Him. When you're filled with the cares of this life, can you serve God properly? You're committing idolatry. Covetousness is a sin that cannot be fellowshipped in the New Testament church. 1 Corinthians 5.11 deals with a fornicator that went to bed with his father's wife. But the chapter goes on in verse 11 to say that along with fornication, brothers that are covetous are to be put out from our number. How do you measure covetousness? I'll tell you how it's measured. It is measured by a lack of giving to the church. If you don't give to the Lord, it shows that you're stealing from Him or yourself. Covetousness is shown by a lack of saving. If you don't have savings, it's because you're covetous. You desire things so much that you are unable to discipline yourself to deny present expenditures to have savings. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. If you don't have much of an inheritance laid up, it's because you're covetous. You've been unable to deny yourself. A foolish man spends up everything he earns. Covetousness can be shown by a lack of charity and hospitality. You show me a family that has no one over, never prepares a meal for anyone else, and I'll show you a family that's covetous. They're keeping it all for themselves. They say, yes, but it takes money to provide a meal for another family. That's the whole point. Spend it. You show me a man that's working too many hours, that doesn't have time for his family, that's always talking about his job, his job's his number one priority, I'll show you a man that's covetous, either of the pride of life or things that he might secure from his job. Impulsive purchases. You show me someone that goes out and buys something and immediately has regrets or should have regrets. He's bought something impulsively without a great deal of thought. That's a man that very well is guilty of covetousness because it results in haste. Excessive admiration of things. If you see someone talking all the time about some particular thing that he doesn't have, then he's guilty of covetousness. Those are ways it can be measured. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, where the apostle says that contentment, which is the opposite of covetousness, is something to be learned. Philippians chapter 4. He speaks in verses 9 and 10 of the Philippians sending him a financial gift. But he says in verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want. I'm not in bad shape. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I moved to South Carolina. That's a state. I'm content in the state of South Carolina. The state of affairs in your life. Several